Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Uh, thank you all uh, for being here. It's such an important conversation, and what a great group we have here as well. Uh, of course, we've got Barbara Boxer, uh, former senator, which is also a former fellow for the USC Center for the Political Future, which is awesome. Adisu Demissi is here as well. Uh, he is the principal and co-founder of 50 Plus One Strategists, Strategies. Uh, he's a political strategist. He ran Gavin Newsom's campaign, which seemed to work pretty well mm-hmm. a few years ago. Uh, he also uh, ran Cory Booker's campaign for the Senate and his presidential campaign, um, and was just a part of the Karen Bass for Mayor campaign, which also seemed to do pretty well. Christian uh, Gross is here, an associate professor of political science and public policy at Dornsife, and the academic director of the USC Schwarzenegger Institute for State and Global Policy. I was just with uh, yesterday, yesterday, yes. yesterday yeah. which is on the issue is this week. Everybody wants to watch it's Friday at 10.30. Shameless plug. I'll get a few of those in. Uh, Ira Reiner is here as well, uh, the 39th Los Angeles County District Attorney, uh, former Los Angeles City Attorney and Controller, and a fall 2002 fellow at the USC Center for the Political Future. Thank you. Welcome. And uh, Tom Ross is here, the President and CEO of Swings Strategies, political consulting firm. Uh, you've also done work with Kevin McCarthy and a lot of the leading Republicans as well. And I was thinking before we get too into the weeds of anything, um, if we could start just with the, the sort of bottom line, big takeaway that each of you had on the midterms and this moment in American politics, maybe we'll just go down the line. I think a lot of things happened in the midterm elections. I concur with a lot of what we heard in the first panel. The Democrats did a lot better than expected, obviously in the U.S. Senate. But in the U.S. House, the Democrats did a lot really much better than you would expect based on historical expectations. Last night I was looking at some of the data on the U.S. House elections, and when you control for all the usual stuff that matters in elections, in Republican-held seats, those who denied the election results in 2020 lost by three percentage points more than other Republicans. So I think that's one really big story of the midterm elections. The other one is the, the way districts are drawn in 2022 made a huge difference, redistricting in the whole country was different. Almost 40% of districts were drawn by a commission, like it's done in California, or by the courts. And I think that made elections a lot more competitive, both on the Republican and the Democratic side. Yeah, I think it's Democratic over overperformance to the historical mean, at least. Uh, we all lived through four years ago when Democrats swept in 2018, 2014, and 2010, the Obama midterms, Republicans over, I mean, 2010, was a complete wipeout. 2014 was a, a, a shellacking, as President Obama said. Uh, 2014 wasn't much better. But in this midterm one, it's going to be a single-digit seat margin. Obviously, we'll flip control of the House, but Democrats picked up seats in the Senate. That's the story of the night. What happened? I mean, I'm think, I think we're going to talk a lot about it, but I do think it did have a lot to do with the candidates that Republicans nominated across the country, the election deniers, the mega-extremists, and Democrats had good candidates, good fits for their districts, good fits for their states, on the ideological spectrum, kind of all over the place, right? You had your moderates, you had your progressives, you had your mainstream liberals, but they fit the state. The incumbents were strong, ran good campaigns. And when you put, you know, candidates matter, I guess, in the end. And um, you put those, you know, things in a pot, boil them up, and ended up being a pretty good night for Democrats. Uh, let's go to a candidate who mattered here in California <laughs> many times. Senator, your take. Well, I agree with everything that's been said, but... I think the big news for me is young people. They made the difference, period. If you look at the turnout and uh, how strongly they supported Democrats. And I think what that shows is young people like democracy. They don't like insurrection. They like freedom, freedom to choose over what they can do with their own bodies. And they saw through a lot of the stuff. Because all the talk about uh, the economy is important, but if you look at the record, which I think they did, they saw that um, we had record-breaking job numbers under Joe Biden, broke all records, 10 million jobs created in two years, Trump 3 million job loss in four years, and they said, hmm, and they came out in strong numbers 
where they had to come out in some of these key Senate races? Uh, well, the two political scientists that I like to uh, quote, first is Yogi Berra, <laughs> uh, who said that the hardest thing to predict is the future. Uh, the other is a uh, famous uh, old-time sports uh, writer by the name of Damon Runyon, who said that the battle does not always go to the strong or the race to the swift, uh, but that's the way to bet. Well, uh, in the midterm elections, uh, if history is to be a guide, and it almost always is, this should have been uh, the incumbent president, first midterm, should have taken a beating, uh, but he did not. And uh, the reasons why, well, uh, we just finished a session here, and uh, frankly, I think everything that was said to one degree or another was accurate. But I do not think it touched upon the number one reason, uh, which is what we need to look at going forward to 24. This was the, I think, the greatest upset in terms of a midterm in the entire history of taking a look at midterms after uh, the uh, first year of a new president. Then what was different? What was so historically different this time? And it was one thing that was historically different. Every time the midterm has been a referendum on the president of the United States. This time, for the first time in history, it was a referendum on a former president. Such a thing has never, ever occurred. And that referendum on a former president who now seeks to be a future president is the issue going forward. All the other issues matter. There is never any one thing that determines outcome of elections. But if there is a dominant issue, it's not turnout here and turnout there, not to uh, make light of that, but the dominant issue is the phenomena of a midterm election being a referendum on a former president who now is to, presumes to be a future president. Do you think that Republicans see it that way? Right. I I would um, give two observations. The first one is this country's divided, and it's divided very evenly. Uh, you look at we have a 50-50 Senate today. Uh, it's 51-49 or 50-50 after this election. Uh, you had a speaker with a five-vote majority in the in the in the House, and it's going to be about the same this time, maybe four or five, somewhere in the same neck of the woods. And conferences like these where there's actual dialogue, I think, are going to be crucial. I think there's a lot of healing in this country that needs to happen on both the Republican side and the Democratic side. So I think, first of all, you have to look at this division that exists. You know, they talk about how this election wasn't the wave that everyone expected, et cetera. I finished last election cycle and said, man, we just rented 14 congressional districts. And we didn't think we could keep those. Turns out they were kind of leased to own. I'm not saying we have a huge margin, but I think this country's divided in a lot of ways, and we're going to see this for a while. That's my first observation. So I do see it a little differently. Second observation is largely this was an incumbent election. Most incumbents are winning uh, throughout the country. California right now, every single incumbent is in the house. Exactly right. And even where districts changed and the incumbent moved, it's every single, every single one of them. And there's only really two undecided races, I think, at this point, right? One's Valadeo. I think he's up by four points. And the one's, other one's an open seat. You know, I, I really view it as an incumbent election more than anything else. Well, and in the Senate, everybody held their seat with the exception of Pennsylvania, which was an open seat. Mm -hmm. Every other seat stays in where it was going into it. But to, to his point, though, which is that this is a referendum on Donald Trump, not really on Joe Biden. We have seen some on the right coming out against Trump in a more aggressive way, certainly some on Fox and Wall Street Journal and New York Post and other folks in the Murdoch empire. Um, but we've seen that before, and it didn't stick. Do you think that Republican voters are ready to move on from Donald Trump, even if their leaders might be? I think the party's starting to look forward. 
instead of look back. I think we had candidates that were successful that were talking about what the policies are going forward. That's a function of him being out of power for, you know, what is now two years and, and continues. I don't think, uh, you know, a week before the election, everyone was talking about this big announcement. I don't think the announcement was as, as big and what everyone thought. Everyone was talking about other things. So uh, we'll see. We'll see. Senator, I, I want to get, before we go too much into the midterms, I just want to get you on some of the breaking news of the day, yeah. which I think you care a lot about, which yeah. is uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi announcing that she uh, is going to be stepping back from leadership, going to remain in the House to help yep. Keen Jeffries and, and a younger uh, generation of leaders. Um, also, Pete Aguilar of California is yep. going to be the whip. What do you make of that move, and, and how do you define Speaker Pelosi's legacy? Greatest of all time. Why do I say that? It's not just that she's like my sister, which she is. People didn't tell us apart when we first came to the Congress. It was ridiculous. We don't look alike. We don't sound alike. But, you know, there were so, there were, no, there were, there were so few women in politics that sort of everybody, every woman got blended to be the, the other one. In those days, so long ago in the 80s, Nancy talked about it today when she made her farewell speech. And she said, when I got to the, Congress in 1987, there were 12 Democratic women. Imagine, out of all those people, and I was one of those, and we became very close because we both represent, she represented the bulk of San Francisco, I represented a portion of it, and counties north, suburban counties. And we were, we were very close. What, what I think about Nancy, and I'll go quickly because, I mean, this is a topic I could talk about. She's remarkable in every way. And I don't throw around those kind of compliments. In politics, you're pretty hard-nosed. You always say, oh, they don't do that right. But I would just say rhetorically, imagine a woman in this position. She has gained the trust of all of her colleagues, literally. And most of them are men. And they trust her because she's so intense about who you are and what your issues are. And what you can do, how you can vote, how you can't vote, what's happening with your family. And I think the reason is she grew up in politics. She had many brothers. Her dad was a member of Congress. Her mother kept it all together. So she got it all. How do you keep it all together and how do you do it? Last point I would make. The reason I say greatest of all times, I served with Tip O'Neill. He was great. He was great. Tip O'Neill would come over to you and he'd say, Ira, I need you on this vote this afternoon. When you say, which vote? <laughs> so, well, the one about the military spending. And Ira would go, oh, my God, I come from a very peacenik district and I can't be with you. And Tip would say, all right, stay cool. If I need you, I'll come back to you. So Tip understood how, when he needed you, if he could get you. But he had a huge plurality. He had like 50 votes to spare. So you were always safe, okay? But Nancy, and it's going to be the same way with McCarthy, she had to get everybody, literally everybody, on every vote because of what you said. It was so close. So how did she do that? How did she persuade you? She looked at you and she say, Ira, I don't want to ask you this at all, but I know how much you care about the country. and." Whatever she said, the magic sauce. That was Nancy. So she will be missed. Last, last, last point. She could get a contribution from this chandelier. <laughs> and if she said, chandelier, I need a hundred bucks, it would come down in $10 bills. And, you know, who can do all that? Very few people. Senator, I would add to that that Tip O'Neill was doing that in a different era when there were earmarks and there was the ability to, to reward and punish better. Good that point. doesn't exist in Congress today. Good point. Uh, so it is very difficult to have that yes. sort of corralling. Yeah, I would. Yeah. So how does Kevin McCarthy do it? And does he have the skill to do it? That is Kevin's best skill, actually. Everyone talks about his personality and where he's at. And, you know, I always envision Kevin as sort of the point guard on a basketball team, you know, allowing other people to score points allowing them to do the things they need to do. And that's Kevin's innate nature. That's how he behaves. So I think we'll be in a good place. Does everybody think he becomes a speaker? I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. I'm not sure. I do. Now, let me tell you a couple of things. I don't want to be Debbie Downer, but I do. 
I heard, I don't know if what I'm about to say is true, so let the record show. I heard he was not at Speaker Pelosi's farewell speech. That hurts my heart, having served in the House for 10 years. But I think it's a sign that he doesn't want to do anything to upset the people who were the, the Trump guys and gals. <laughs> and so I also heard today that the first thing they announced they're going to do is investigate Hunter Biden. And I think that is sad because the Republicans who won their seat, they went out there and said, look at inflation, it's terrible. Look at this, it's awful. We have to fix all this, it's terrible. And now they're going to investigate. So I'm not so sure. It's a hard line for Kevin because he doesn't seem to, in my opinion, have a strong ability to stand up there and look at his colleagues like Nancy could and say, you know what, you may not agree with me, but I feel we have to do this for the good of the party, for the good of the country. I don't sense that in him. Now, maybe I'm wrong. I do know Kevin, and I, I almost said work with him, but I don't think that's fair. I, I think we worked on a lot of opposite sides. But honestly, I'm not so sure because not that it's his fault that he may not get the vote. It's sort of an impossible circumstance. What is he going to do? If he boycotts the Nancy Pelosi thing, some of the members go, oh, that was small. Shouldn't that? The others go, yeah. It's a mess. And the ones, so I'm not so sure. Yeah. And the, no, no, I think you're right, because the ones that, and this is a dynamic of politics on both sides now, the ones, the four people that it would take to defect, or the five or whatever we're gonna, it's going to end up being, which, by the way, makes these races that are uncalled in California even more important, right? These margins matter have the biggest megaphones, right? The Twitter, Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Jim Jordans who will go on Tucker or Hannity whenever, you know, they want to, essentially. And so those folks don't, they're bigger than Kevin McCarthy in the amongst the Republican base. Maybe I'm wrong. And so all it takes is three or four of them to throw a hissy fit next week or whenever the, the, uh, the or I guess in January when the speaker election is. And we're into a I don't know what happened situation. I would bet on McCarthy if I had to bet on somebody, but you know I don't know what the odds would be. You know he's, he may be a plurality favorite, not a majority favorite. Yeah. We saw how challenging it is for with cinema and mansion. How much hey, <laughs> when you had a fifty-fifty, you see that one person could can basically control the entire country. I just want to add. I think McCarthy could get elected speaker, but it's going to be a very long two years, right? So if, if Valadea loses in the Central Valley, he's ahead right now, but it's a few thousand votes. That's one less vote. If he wins, that's one more vote, right? A lot of people could switch parties. We've seen party switches before with Jim Jeffords in 2001, who moved things from the R's to the D's. A lot of, a lot of um, people who might not, you know, there's, there's several vacancies due to desk resignations, jobs that have happened over the last several Congresses. and we Jail might, time? The, or indictment in jail. There's many reasons that in a year, McCarthy as speaker might be in a little bit more of a tenuous position than next month. Uh, if I might, I think it within less than a year, uh, McCarthy will be in the same position as John Boehner, uh, if you get the drift of that one. Any, Meaning that the Republican, the out. Freedom Caucus, the people that are the most hardcore Trump supporters go against him. And, and he's out. Yeah, it took a little longer uh, for Boehner, but I don't think McCarthy will last as long as Boehner. Before we wrap up on Nancy Pelosi, as one of the top political strategists in California, who's Bay Area based, can you give us some insight on her importance in California politics and what a force she's been? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, first of all, we have somebody probably better at that than I, but there's no doubt in my mind that. She has held not just the Democratic caucus together, but the California delegation together, which is the biggest delegation in the country uh, uh, within the Democratic caucus and obviously within the Congress as a whole. And so to the Bay Area, too, and, you know, San Francisco politics, for those of you who don't, is like, what do they say? It's like a, a, a knife fight in a phone booth, isn't that what they say? <laughs> um, I mean, it is, as, it is as tough as they come. And she comes directly out of that, in addition to all the things that the senator talked about. And so she has... It's going to it's going to turn San Francisco politics into a bit of a bloodbath for a couple of years, as I anticipate she's not going to run for re-election in 2024. She said she's going to stay through, but she has held the caucus together, she has held the delegation together, and she has held San Francisco politics in many ways together over the course of the last two decades. So it's going to be a little tough, I think, without a leader as strong. With you know, all due respect to I guess it's Zoloftrin now, who's the dean of the of the of the delegate delegation. She's staying in the house. She is going to stay in the house, yeah. but. Um, 
I presume she will not run for re-election in 2024, and that will create a power vacuum going forward. I just want to make one quick point about Speaker and why it's so important, because some people don't know. Uh, you know, if you don't follow it all, like most of you probably do, but in case you don't. The big power is what gets brought to the floor, right? What are we going to do? And that's where I look at Kevin McCarthy or whoever gets to be the Speaker. Imagine you're everybody that they have to listen to, that this person has to listen to. And this table wants us to focus on inflation. And this table wants to focus on Hunter Biden. And this one wants to focus on God knows what else. And it goes on and on. And then Kevin McCarthy or whoever's the speaker has to make a decision. What are we going to focus on? Imagine the battles that will happen with in that caucus. I mean, all caucuses are rough. I'm not saying Democratic caucus. It's rough. I, as, as you know, uh, there's left to right in the Democratic caucus. There's lots of battles. So I'm not just pointing fingers at the Republicans on this point, but it takes a Nancy Pelosi type of figure to be able to say to AOC or somebody from that crowd, you've got to understand we've got to pull together for this, that, or the other. Does Kevin McCarthy have that ability? Does anyone else have? I don't know, but I think it's going to be very rough, and I think the Boehner analogy is a very good one. He just couldn't pull it together. They did got nothing done. And I think that sets us up for the 2024 election. Well, it's interesting. I've talked to some members off the record privately who have been around in the House for a while and say that even five, six years ago, Pelosi would just say something and everybody would do it. <laughs> and now, because of the same dynamics you're talking about with the Republicans, with people having bigger social media profiles, becoming right. their own brands that a lot of the younger, newer members have even said to her, no, sure. uh, in a way that didn't happen before and made that job a lot harder, um, and you think would make that job harder going forward. Get you in here, and I know we've got a senator here, but we'll, the, the challenges for, for governing in the Senate going forward and what that looks like uh, politically. Yeah, I mean, the... Um I really just would want to defer to Senator Boxer here, but let me go. <laughs> no, go ahead. No. She's been <laughs> um, in the room where it happens quite literally. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, a 50-50 Senate, which we've had for the last two years, means the vice president is going to cast a bunch of tie-breaking votes. Um, a lot of senators are, you know, it's very precipitous. Right? I, I studied a, a time in the 1950s where nine senators died, and they changed party control twice during that time. Um, I'm not predicting that happens, by the way. I hope that doesn't happen. But but a 50-50 Senate, the last time we had one other than the last two years was in the 1950s, and the party shifted. It's really, really hard for the Democratic leader, the Republican leader, to be able to control things in such a narrow margin. But but whoever has the majority in the Senate, it's really important. And that's why that Georgia seat is so important, because it gives you a little bit. Yeah, well, I... you, you've been there. You know what it's like. Um, what do you expect, yeah. and, and can that be governed? <gasps> well, first of all, the professor is right in everything that he said. It's precarious. It's so precarious. And the, I'm glad you mentioned Georgia because it is so important. And I know we have a mixed group out there, but any of you who happen to be Democratic, if you've got $5, send it. Yeah. To Warnock, I kid you. If I was Nancy, I would. Yeah. But um, you get the drift. It's very important to have that padding for a million reasons. Something happens to the vice president. She's stuck somewhere, or she's sick, or she can't make it. I mean, what? You, well, I was about to go there. Yeah. Um, you know, and then you have a couple of members who, let's shall we say, might put themselves ahead of the group, and. That happens quite a lot, Republicans, Democrats, because, you know, I often say, you take a look at everyone in the Senate, they three-quarters of them think they should be president. So, you know, it's hard to work with people like that. But um, you have to find the sweet spot on legislating. But, no, it's precarious. I will say this. Chuck Schumer is a, a very good leader. He knows where the sweet spot is. He knows where he can get people together. I think I heard the last panel talk about the wonderful legislation on making sure that the Defensive Marriage Act is gone and we can have interracial marriage in a state and no one can take it away. Or gain. I mean, that was a beautiful thing of beauty for me to see because I was one of 11 who voted against the Defensive Marriage Act. And, you know, 
it took years and years to get people to understand love is love is love. But it's going to be, you know, very, very tough. And you know you have to get 60 votes to do anything big. And unless you have enough senators to say on a woman's right to choose or on voting rights or these important issues, we're going to not do the filibuster. Unless you can get the votes to do that, it's going to be very tough to get anything done. But let me just end with this. I don't get on my hands and knees much pray about politics because when I did it in the past, it didn't always work. But this time, I did it and it worked. And I felt that we, I knew we wouldn't make it with the House, and I, that's fine, that's the way it goes. But I really was fearful, just because I'm a Democrat, I'm not playing like I'm not. I'm telling you who I am and what I believe in, and I was scared that we would you know, not send the right message. And I thought the right message was sent. I'm sure this was discussed in the other panels. I won't take a lot of time. But I felt after the insurrection, democracy held. And democracy held because of Democrats and Republicans who stood up at the right moment and went through with the count. And Mike Pence, who did not leave, he wouldn't get in that car and be taken away. And my heart swelled. But my heart was stopping before Election Day because I thought, what's going to be the message that comes out of this? And I think if you look at Republicans who won versus Republicans who lost, Democrats who won, I think we, we still have our democracy. And um, this is way off of what you said, but it's going to be close in the Senate. It's going to be hard, hard. Why do you think that is, that, that some of these Republicans who... Poland show we're in close races. Mehmet uh, Oz and Blake Masters and potentially Herschel Walker or some of these other folks around the country weren't able to bring it home. Obviously, Herschel Walker still might, but mm-hmm. some of these close races with the, you know, it, it went it went the Democratic way. Yeah, and, and just to go off what the senator said on January 6th, I watched the um, Pence town hall yesterday. Uh, it was really powerful. Yeah. Uh, for those that you haven't seen it, it was really powerful what he did that day. Yep. He refused to leave the garage. He said, I'm not going to show them a 16-car motorcade leaving this building, and came back and did the votes that night. Pretty amazing story. Yep. Yep. Really, really touching. So I wanted to just follow with that, because I do think that was, if you haven't seen it, you should watch it. And then I think that each race had unique problems, you know, in Pennsylvania. And I, I, I'm not going to kid you, I don't follow Senate races like I do California work, but I think in Pennsylvania, you had a terrible governor's candidate as well. You know, it's, it's pretty amazing to watch a candidate lose like that in, in a race that um, you watch the debate happen. Most of the ballots had already been, you know, a lot of ballots had already been in, uh, didn't impact that. But it kind of shows quality of candidates. I, I mean, you know, I got to just, I mean, I think someone said it earlier, quality of candidates. And if you look in California, the type of candidates we have, you know, the seats we pick up in California, it's Young Kim, it's Michelle Steele. David Valadeo, it's Mike Garcia. That's the kind of candidate recruitment that as a party we have to look at nationally. I think we get that here in California. We know where we need to be. We don't get that at a national level. Kevin McCarthy deserves some credit for all the credit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about another race that, that I think has had some high interest and also sort of breaking news. Uh, Karen Bass will be the next mayor of Los Angeles, in part thanks to your help on her campaign. Interesting. She had the whole establishment behind her, the president, vice president, the secretary of state, speaker of the house, the whole deal. Um, he had $100 million and some good issues. Homelessness, crime, people frustrated with the establishment. How did she pull this off? I think, look, she has a, and continues to have a 30 plus year record that could stand up to $100 million of spending, uh, both negative and positive for, for Rick Caruso. And I think, you know, that brand that she had developed by working in this city, by you know, representing this city in Congress, by representing, representing this city in Sacramento, you can't, in some ways, you can't buy that, right? And I will say, Caruso had some good issues. I think ran, I think generally speaking, a smart campaign, but he ran against the wrong opponent, right? He ran against somebody who could withstand that. And ultimately, I don't think it's going to be that close. I mean, it is closer than one might have thought, but when all the votes are counted, she's going to win by 6 8%, right? That is, it's not a whisker, put a deal like that. Um, and I think a lot of that resilience is because of decades of work. It's not just six months of television ads. It's, it's 30 years. And 
could Rick Caruso have won a campaign against a different opponent? I think the answer to that is definitely yes, but candidates matter, and this was a very specific kind of campaign between somebody who, you know, a black woman who had roots in community organizing in this city against a wealthy businessman who also had roots in the city, but was coming at it from a totally different angle. Do you think Caruso would have been there if I <laughs> Probably, if I'm going to be honest with you, I, I think he could have. I don't. I mean, yeah, I think the answer is yes. I already have such a long history. <laughs> what do you make of this moment and that race? I'm, I'm persuaded. I'm talking about this for a couple months now. Uh, that, and by the way, I supported Karen Bass. I've known Karen for years. I have the highest regard for her, and I'm delighted she won. Now, getting just to a, a strictly analytical way of looking at it. Caruso lost the election by making a strategic mistake before the campaign even began. They decided, and I play no role in their campaign, and none of them have ever confided in me, but it's abundantly obvious. They made a decision at the very beginning of the campaign that the two great issues were homelessness and crime. They were wrong. The single greatest predictor of how people are going to vote is their party registration. And in Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles, it is, what, 13% registered Republican? What Caruso should have done in terms of a strategic mistake is that the first thing, the first pop out of the box at the beginning of his campaign is not to talk about homelessness, not to talk about crime, but to talk about his conversion, the the journey, the personal journey that he took, that took him from being a Republican to becoming a Democrat. And that had to be a significant portion of this $100 million at the beginning to establish the bona fides of how he traveled that road uh, to become a Democrat. Once that was established, he could now get to other issues like homelessness and crime. Failing to do that, the reason that Karen was able to defeat him in the primary, where he had spent an incredible amount of money doing very well, highly professional uh, TV spots, and she comparatively had a negligible amount of uh, uh, television, is that she was successful in tagging him as a Republican. Once that was done, game over. And so in the primary, she won by 7% on the basis of one issue and one issue only. I'm a Democrat, and he's a Republican. Now comes into the general, an incredible amount of money times two is spent, and all of the question. And then the $13 million on a ground game, whoever spent $13 million in a city race on the ground game, for God's sakes. Um, that, I mean, that's not even television. And yet the idea was, well, this is going to change things. It didn't change the underlying reality. She had tagged him as a Republican. And so what happened in the general, when the votes now have all been counted, same thing, same, same as the primary. She wins by almost the identical number. Yeah, so that was sort of the, the big question before, would he be able to make that convincing argument that at more than a Republican in name only? Your argument is he didn't. And the big challenge for her was to get over this idea of, I'm going to be Eric Garcetti 2.0. Uh, it's just going to be more of the same. And ultimately, your analysis is, and maybe Christian, your analysis maybe do agree, that people cared more about the, the democratic issue, and ultimately that carried the day for her. I actually think that Karen Bass being from Washington helped her here a little bit. She was able to get Biden to endorse her, able to get the whole Democratic Party in Washington to get behind her because she knew them from being in Washington. You know, Wendy Gruel versus Eric Garcetti several years ago. It's not exactly a national race. It's more of a city race, and so I think the Democratic Party thing is huge. Um, the way to win in Los Angeles, the way to win in the state of California, Democrat, 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 right? I mean, there's so many Democrats and there's more of them in L.A. than there are Republicans by a long shot. You know, I mean, Caruso really probably should have switched to become a Democrat a couple years earlier. That I think that might have <laughs> made a difference um, uh, instead of right before the election. That, hey, Alex, can I 
I just want to put a little bit of a different opinion. And I agree. First of all, I think that's so insightful and so correct. I'm a Democrat, I said before, Pratt. And I'll tell you who I love more than anything else these days, the Republicans who step out and say, you know what, and they, and they say from their heart that they're worried about the direction. I, and if those, there's lots of you out here, I, I, I can't tell you. And at the beginning of all my terror about losing democracy and seeing anti-Semitism and seeing racism and all the isms, I said to my husband, who, my darling who's here today, Stuart, I said, you know, who can save us from this? Republicans will save us from this. I think this journey that he made, and I don't know Rick Russo, if he in truth made the journey, what a great moment to tell it. So good, for, good on you for that. I do want to say something about Karen, the person who I love and endorsed. So I don't want to, you know. She's a healing type of person. She's a healer. She's got that type of personality. She's got that way of speaking. She's calm. She's got a good heart. And I love that about her. And I think because we've been talking about more technical things, Democrats and Washington, yes. But we did talk about candidate equality. And I think she's a beautiful candidate. I called her the day after um, that horrific thing that happened at City Hall when they revealed those tapes that were so racist and so horrifying. And I said to her, Karen, you're the one. You're the healer. You could do this. You can bring everybody together. Get out there with all your diverse supporters. And she said, yeah, I, I'm, do, I, I'm doing it, Barbara. But I just want, didn't want it to go by and it sounds so cold because she is a healing personality. I think we're going to see that in the future because she's, she's, she's a good human being. Two things on the L.A. race. One is I have a mentor who taught me early on that uh, the candidate that's most likely win looks like, acts like, and shares the core values of the community they're trying to represent. Uh, so there's a lot of analysis that you can do, but Karen checks, you know, that's, you know, she, she had, or he had a much difficult time doing that. Second of all, I think her win is good for LA because don't forget, uh, she was Speaker of California State Assembly. Yes. And do you remember who was leader at the time for the Republicans? It was Kevin McCarthy. And the two of them actually have a very cordial relationship. And I think that'll be good for L.A. Yes. and for the speaker. When each of them were on my show separately, the issue is Friday at 1030, I asked them each separately, who is your favorite Republican and who is your favorite Democrat? And both of them said the other person. That's great. That was a few years ago for her. I don't know if she would still say that. <laughs> <laughs> that was before January 6th. But still, they, they, they have a lot of love for each other. That's and, good. And Arnold Schwarzenegger has said very nice things about her, too. He was governor at the time, and they had a very good working relationship. It's all good. Um, uh, but, and, and to give a shout-out to Caruso, because nobody's defending him on this panel, I will say covering the race, it was one of my favorite races to cover ever because they both are really impressive people and kind and I think people of integrity, one of my favorite shows I've ever done, we did a special with both of them about the work that they do in the community and opening up with both of their kids, or all their kids spoke on camera for the first time about them, and you got a sense of how dedicated they are as parents and how dedicated for 40 years both of them have been to serving this community. And I think it was a great thing to not have a race that was lesser of two evils to have two really mm -hmm. impressive people. Mm -hmm. And I hope there's a way that they can work together now because I think the city yes. really needs them. They're both friends of USC, yeah. right? Caruso, when we were analyzing Are Caruso, they? we're not analyzing, <laughs> we're not analyzing uh, <laughs> yeah. them as people. We're analyzing what happened in the election. And I think, I mean, my neighbor follows our local politics quite a bit. She said both of them would be better than Eric Garcia. So I think we, we may think they're both pretty good. And also, no mayor had ever served for nine years. That, was, that wasn't supposed to be, but they changed it so that the election would be on even years, so we got extra bonus time, which we was hoping to be spending in India. My father was a long-distance truck driver, and another truck crashed into him. We had just started a new phase of our relationship. Hi, I'm Jay Ruderman, host of All About Change, a podcast showcasing individuals who leverage the hardships they faced to better the lives of others. We hadn't figured it all out, but we were making steps. 
Listen to All About Change for a dose of hope and inspiration. Let's talk about another interesting statewide figure. Oh, uh, here we go. Uh, let's talk about Cory Booker. No, no, let's talk about <laughs> Gavin Newsom. Um, what's the deal? I mean, he's running for president, right? It's just about what year, whether it's this year or next year. Are you going to be involved in that at all? What do you make of no. what he's doing right now? I think my honest take is I don't I do not think he's going to run for president against Joe Biden under any circumstances. First of all, he's too smart for that because he would get killed. Yeah. Uh, and second of all, I think Joe Biden has earned the I think Simone said it at the end of the last panel, the opportunity to decide for himself if he's going to run again. If he runs again, he will he will win the primary. And I think I don't think he will have a credible challenge from anybody. Certainly, nobody with a good sense like Governor Newsom. Do I think he's running for president in twenty twenty eight or? sometime in the future? I do not know. I do think, though, that he realizes that he is 53 years old, whatever he is right now, four years old. He is now a lame duck governor. And four years from now, he, he's reached the pinnacle of, <laughs> of politics, at, at least, you know, there's only really, I guess, two ways to go, the Senate or the or, or president, right? And he is not done, I don't think, with, with public service. And so whether that is it could be anything. It could be running for president. It could be running for Senate. It could be getting an appointment in a future Democratic administration. It could be joining Simone on MSNBC as a talk show. Like, I don't know what it is. I truly do not. But I think a lot of what you've seen in the last six months is him realizing, A, I have four more years to make an impact here in California, and B, that 2026 is not going to be the end of his time in public service or in, the, in, uh, uh, in politics. Can I ask you a follow-up? Uh, that isn't really about whether he's running for president or not, but... He certainly, I think it's fair to say he's putting himself in a position that if he did want to run for president, he'd have an ability to do that. But can you give us some insight into who he is? Because I think there's a lot of uh, misconceptions about him. And you're yeah. somebody who spent a lot of personal, intimate time with him, which I, most people yeah. don't get to. And give us some insight on who Gavin Too much. <laughs> um, from four years ago. I'll tell a story, actually, which um, I don't remember who the reporter was who interviewed him, but... In 2018, someone was writing the story of marriage equality and what he did in 2004, 2003, whatever that was, in San Francisco uh, in City Hall. And he did a what should have been a 15-minute interview, which became a 45-minute interview because, God bless Gavin Newsom, sometimes he can't shut up. Good for people like you, not good for people like me. Um, <laughs> and we were in my office, in our campaign office in, in San Francisco, and he spent probably another 30 minutes after the interview just telling me in a one-on-one, -on -one, you know, conversation behind closed doors how meaningful that moment was to him and literally started crying. And I was like, who is this guy? Like, he's so put together, the hair, everybody knows, you know. But he is, I think, you know, he's dyslexic. He was bullied growing up. And for somebody who, you know, has wealth and good looks and all these things now, he still kind of retains that underdog mentality inside of him and really cares. And, like, it's, it doesn't come out as much as I frankly wish it would if I'm being honest, but in the moments, that, that's the one thing I would say about him is like for all his smoothness and the, his, ability, his political talent, which is immense, he fundamentally is still like a, he considers himself an underdog or a champion of the underdog. And that gay marriage uh, stuff in San Francisco is kind of the apotheosis of that, but it's happened, I think, a lot over the course of his career. Well, and he was, and he's talked about that he was bullied a lot as a kid yeah. because he couldn't read. Yeah. And I think there is part of him that is still that kid in third grade who was laughing. And, and remembers that and uses a lot, a lot of it comes from that. Hey, Alex, Alex, before I talk about him, that reminds me of Joe Biden. Because as we, yes, as we look at Joe and everybody says, oh, you know, he's losing it. He can't get the word out. This is due to a stutter. Do you say stammer or stutter? What's the right way? Stutter. Stutter that he had as a little kid and so hard to overcome it. And you will see it now. And I think it makes people, including Governor Newsom, who I know very well was dyslexic because I talked to him about it, it gives them a, a certain kind of caring about others who are struggling. And we all struggle with stuff. And most of us have something. And it makes them, I think, fighters because they know they had to overcome the bullies and they had to uh, prove that they, you know, they could do it. And imagine being dyslexic, it's hard for you to read, 
So you really have to know what you're going to say. And in all honesty, when I give a major speech, I always write it myself because I'm a writer and I love to write, but I also stand up and I have my script and I read it. Sometimes I will riff on it. But if you have trouble reading, this is so hard to overcome. And it's made him a very good speaker, I think, at this, at this point, because he, he needs to do it. Personally, I'm a Gavin Newsom fan. I'm also a fan of Governor Whitmer, just to put it out on the table. I'm a fan of a lot of this Kamala wonderful Harris. generation. Say it. Kamala Harris. Fan of Kamala's. Think the other two are stronger just because of their history and how they're doing. But I do think <clears throat> Newsom has shown his, his courage in lots of ways, even when I don't agree with him. I've seen him stand against folks that I'm on the side of. Once in a while, I'm like, why are you doing that? And he does it fine because he thinks that's the right thing. I'm a fan. Yeah. Uh, more of a conservative perspective. Sometimes people in California live in sort of an echo chamber inside California, and then you go to other states and you realize California isn't as popular in those places <laughs> as it is here. Do you think that a California governor who is so much a California governor could win in the middle of the country, could win in Michigan and Pennsylvania, win some of those states that would be needed for a Democrat to win? I think Californians that want to run for president frequently overestimate their strength in California. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm serious about that. You know, I mean, that was the whole, uh, you know, well, Pete, Pete Wilson never made it to California. Um, but even when Kamala was, you know, in, in that space, it was California. And I think they overestimate, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of survey work in California, and I know Gavin Newsom won 60-40. His favorable ratings aren't as high as everyone thinks they mm-hmm. are. It's tough to be governor of the state of California, and he has to finesse also a $25 billion budget deficit that LAO just came out with yesterday. Historically, as an executive, the city of San Francisco has a great amount of wealth, doesn't have a lot of budget problems. He's going to have some real challenges. The challenges he's had so far are pretty small compared to what he's going to face in the next 18 months, in my mind. He's been seeing that coming for years, trying to do a lot of one-time expenditures to not crisis that other people have, but it's going to be challenging. All right, before we go to Q&A from the, the crowd, I want to go around the horn and try to keep this brief on who do you think is the strong, I know we're still a little ways out from 2024, but who do you think would be the strongest Republican nominee and who would be the strongest Democratic nominee? And not the long answer, but the short version of that. I think the Florida governor uh, probably is the, the, probably the strongest Republican nominee. Uh, I think DeSantis kind of has the forward look that Republicans are looking for. So that would be on the Republican side. I, I mean, it's Joe Biden's. I mean, it's Joe Biden's if he wants it. If it's not Joe, I think it's Kamala's to want it. And I think they're probably the two strongest. I think Joe Biden, even with the age, is a better candidate than anybody else in the Democratic Absolutely. I, I can hear it here. I, I mean, I, I hear it here. Everyone's there. Yeah, I, I think Newsom would be a stronger candidate than Biden in the Democratic primary. I don't know about the general election. I think Biden would be a stronger candidate in the general election. Um, I think Gretchen Whitmer would be really good. I think Larry Hogan out of Maryland would be an excellent general election candidate, would probably not win the primary. Um, and I also think DeSantis would probably be able to get the primary and possibly win the general. <laughs> Fun fact, I went to college with Ron DeSantis. Uh, our, our pictures are next to each other on the, in the freshman yearbook because our last names are right next to each other. So, <laughs> did you know each other? I didn't know him well. Uh, I mean, we know of each other, but not. What was he like in college? Jock. Big time, frat boy jock, like exactly what you would think. He was in the same fraternity as George Bush, baseball player, jock. What were you like? Not a jock. <laughs> uh, student government, yeah. Um, the opposite. I honestly, I will say, I think Ron DeSantis is a paper tiger. I think he is Scott Walker, part the second coming. Rick Perry, the second coming. I think the idea of him is way better than the reality. Trump light is not going to be what I think is strongest, and I think that's basically what he is. I think it would be more someone more like, Kemp in Georgia, or one of the people who just won not being Trump. <laughs> I think Joe Biden is by far the strongest candidate. I think he cannot be beaten in the primary. And I think in the general, who knows, right? Is, do you think that somebody like Brian Kemp can win the that is a That is a question. <laughs> I think the answer is probably not, but there is a path. But there is a path. I think there is a path for a non-Trump this time, unlike four years ago or eight years ago. But it requires. There's so much between now and then. I have no idea what it's called. Do you think that they would? Everybody would have to coalesce 
You you need one. Yeah. You need like people to come together and decide we're putting up Brian Kemp and he is our anti-Trump and we are throwing hundreds of millions of dollars into a super PAC and then that person has to perform well and the stars need to align. But Trump's the favorite. Biden, if he wants it, and I agree, Kemp. And if Biden doesn't want it, who's the star? I don't know. Yeah. I'll come back another time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on the Republican side, of which I know little or nothing, uh, I think I I think a vulnerability of DeSantis beyond what has been suggested, which is probably correct, is that he's going to be subject to an unrelenting attack by Trump. I mean, Trump is going to savage him, and that's bound to have an effect for others, whoever they may be, to then pass him. Because, uh, you know, Trump is Trump, and Trump already Already, before Trump even announced, he then publicly announces that he knows something about um, DeSantis that not even DeSantis' wife knows. I mean, talk about your dirty campaigns. I mean, this is for openers. Dissu knows it, though. (laughs) So, um, And how about Trump running as an independent? Go for it. Well, yes. yes, that would be. It's a good point. Trump loses in the primary. You think he's like going off into the sunset? Like, oh, I lost. I, I doubt that. <laughs> He'll muse about it, but the reality is he would not want to come in third in any race, and that's what would, it would be. Uh, so I think that DeSantis is going to be savage beyond uh, repair <laughs> just by Trump. And so who picks it up after that? I have no idea. On the Democratic side, absolutely Biden. And all of this talk about Biden being too old, you know, I take that personal. I'm seven years older than <laughs> And I'm not running for president, uh, but nonetheless. No. That came from Roger Stone, that yeah. remark. Yeah. It's the only thing I ever agreed with Trump on. <laughs> Ron Sanctimonious, I love that. Um, anybody want to ask a question? In LA County, the big race, I believe, will be George and Gascon for district attorney yes. and for re-election. So I wondered if the panel, based on your uh, our experience from the midterms now with the mayor's race and the issues about crime, the San Francisco knife fight with Chesa Budin, if you have any, starting with Ira, maybe based on your experience, any idea about how the DA race in L.A. County will go? Uh, well, again, that's two years off, but I think that um, that he is in serious jeopardy. Uh, that uh, he he dodged a bullet, and uh, I think someone, I think it was Churchill, said there's nothing so exhilarating as to be shot at without result. Well, uh, <laughs> Gascon was shot at with this uh, recall effort. Uh, without result. But nonetheless, he is in serious jeopardy two years from now uh, when he runs for uh, re-election. What happened in San Francisco was something of an eye-opener. By the way, what is happening as we speak in uh, Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia in particular, uh, Larry Krasner is the district attorney in Philadelphia and of this uh, progressive prosecutor movement that is uh, making a great deal of headway nationally. I think Larry Krasner is probably the single most prominent progressive prosecutor of that movement. Uh, He just won re-election. I think the number was he received 70% of the vote. A Republican committee in the uh, Pennsylvania legislature has just voted out an impeachment um, which is something they can do there in Pennsylvania, not known here in California, uh, to impeach him after having been just uh, reelected uh, with about 70% of the vote. It now has to go to their uh, Senate, and it requires a two-thirds vote, which would require a number of Democrats joining with the Republicans uh, to um, impeach him. Uh, I think that would, that's a preposterous notion. Uh, in any event, that's what's taking place in Pennsylvania. Uh, locally, um, uh, George Cascone has two years to recover from where he is now, and where he is now is not a good place. All right, 
we're going to try to get as many in as, as we can. So, so I, I live in the, in the uh, California border. So um, a Republican incumbent won there in large, not large part, but in part because of the DNC spending money to boost the MAGA candidate in the primary system. So I wanted to get everybody's opinion. I was a little concerned also about the Democratic Party's candidate, frankly. I mean, there was some quality on, on both sides of this, but... The Democratic Party did boost a MAGA candidate in the primary system, the jungle primary. Um, it didn't work. The incumbent made it through the primary system. So I just wanted to get, I know it's I know it's working a lot on the East Coast. I know around the rest of the country there's a lot of success stories from running MAGA candidates from Democratic Party money. It didn't seem to work in my district, and I think there's other California districts who would say the same thing. People who may not know, he's talking about the 40th district, which is Young Kim, who's yep. a Republican incumbent. She had a challenger in the primary and ended up running against Asif Mahmoud in the uh, general election. And, and there was a lot of money that went to Greg Ratz yeah. in the primary system, and he couldn't even hang on to his, his city council race. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll take that because I've been thinking a lot about this, and I know there's been a lot of discussion about election deniers and all of that. You, you know, the Democrat Party funding those candidates is a huge ethical decision to make sure those candidates were to get through the primaries. And I know the choice was, oh, that they're better to beat, we can beat them. But you're also promoting it at the same time. Right. And that was a significant ethical choice that I think was a lapse. Uh, yet the same thing happened at the attorney general's race. Botna propped up early. That was his intent, to try and prop up a Trump Republican through that primary. So, you know, there, there's a lot on both sides of this as we start talking about how this plays. And there's probably about six or seven other places in the country where they did that. Senator. I don't think it's it's an ethical issue. That's just, let's grow up. I mean, there's a lot of dirty campaigning. I lived through the 41st Congressional, and you cannot believe <clears throat> the things that were said. So, you know, it's not about ethics. It, to me, it's smart politics. I, I don't mind. If, I don't care. If, if, if there are three candidates running, and one is a MAGA <coughs> person, and you think that you're better off running against that person, and you, you put an ad out that says, we just want to let you know about this person. They vote for A, B, C, and D, as long as it's truthful. I know that's controversial. But I think all this crocodile tears about, oh, you, you know, grow up. If these people are running and they have a record and you want to tell folks what the record is, let that, be, let that go. Guess what? It backfires sometimes, and sometimes it pays off. But if the Republicans wanted to run, uh, they've done it where they wanted to nominate a far-left person and they put out an ad and said, do you know that this far-left person did A, B, and C? That's life. So grow up, suck it up. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. That's how I feel about it. I mean, real quickly, isn't the danger in that that if it really is about an existential crisis for the country, that you're putting somebody in position that potentially could, you know, vote against the uh, democratic will of the people in the House next time around? Yeah. To the senator's point, th there never was a once upon a time in politics. Thank you. So there, there's, not a Thank you. there's not a damn thing new about I mean, this. really, all this crocodile tears about it. If you cannot take the heat, get out of the kitchen. Who said that? <laughs> Young Kim won, though, so we're fine. In that case. That, that, can, I, can I add that real fast? I know our, the, I mean, these are six or seven elections. Yes, it's an ethical question, but that's not really the problem, right? The problem is hundreds of people who don't accept election results, right? And so, yeah, you can talk about ethics here, but, I mean, the other thing coming up is there's court cases before the Supreme Court, one in December, that's on the independent state legislature theory. It can make things much less Democratic, small-D Democratic in the future. Like, that's a much bigger deal than six or seven. Young Kim ended up winning, and, you know, Peter Mayer, who's a pretty good person, ended up losing a primary. Those matter, but those are smaller than the big-picture Supreme Court Small D democracy could be in. And the biggest impact probably of the Democrats winning the Senate is on the judiciary, both the federal judiciary and the potential for Yes. Hi, so there's been some speculation that Dianne Feinstein might retire soon, and even if not, eventually she's not going to run for re-election. Um, Adam Schiff has been discussed as a possible um, person who would run next. Um, there's also discussion that Gavin Newsom supposedly promised to nominate a black woman if she does resign, so I'm going to just speculate about that. Uh, who would be the, the next best senator from California? <laughs> senator? Okay, so um, I'm not declaring today who I'm supporting, but I, but I, but I, but I, but I do want to say, I don't think 
Senator Feinstein is going to resign. I don't think so. So I think it's going to be an election, and it's going to be extremely exciting because we have so much talent in our state. Imagine what it will be like. So seats don't open up very often. No, they do not. Right. I held mine for 24 years, and um, I left, and part of the reason was I did want to open it up to the next generation. Um, and we have a beautiful person in there now, Alex Padilla, just saying. Um, but, no, I, I, don't, I think she'll stick with it, and I think there'll be a big, uh, a big battle in the, in the primary. It'll be fabulous. Oh, yeah. It'll be, oh, who knows? Yeah. Hi. Um, it's an honor to speak to you guys. Uh, my question, so first I want to say, I think you guys are leaving out Roy Cooper from North Carolina. He could be like some sort of like an ace or a trump card, like reminiscent of Bill Clinton. And my question is, we've seen a, like a Trumpy election denier in New York, Lee Zeldin, get 47% of the vote, hammering home crime. We've seen Ron Johnson, also election denier, hammer home crime. And it just seems like a blind spot for Democrats. And so I was wondering, is the most effective way for us to combat that as Democrats to actually put in like tough on crime policies or to change the perception and use stronger messaging around it. You're the perfect uh, I actually would really like to hear what Ira has to say. But yeah, I think, I do not think the answer is tough on crime policies for the sake of politics. I do think, my own personal opinion on, if, like, if I were mayor or what have you, that quality of life issues, period, if you are running a city, need to be first and foremost before a lot of the other things that I think Democrats have started to talk about too much. When it comes down to it, people want their city to be clean, they want it to be safe, they want to be able to use public services, and like if you can't get the basics right, you're go- it's going to be hard to convince people of other things. And so, to me, that message-wise, like I think that's where we have to head. I don't think this is about going back to the 90s. Like th- Those days are past, and uh, I think it will backlash amongst our base, if I'm being honest, right? But do I think we can do a better job of communicating what we will do to address people's legitimate concerns about crime or homelessness or whatever it is? Yes. So I guess to answer your question, I think it is a messaging issue more than anything. I also think, last thing I will say, Republicans are very, very good at preying on fear on this issue. Um, and it is really hard. <laughs> it, is, it is just, it is a much easier message to push that what Trump said the other day in his, his uh, announcement, like the blood-soaked streets of San Francisco or whatever he was, I mean, like, it's vivid, and it is strong, and it is very hard to be like, actually, we're doing our best. You know. So it, it's a messaging problem, to answer your question, and I think we can talk about it more and talk about it in a way that act, people actually understand. Byron can give us a 30-second answer on it. Not in 30 seconds. <laughs> That's okay. all you got. You got 54. I know this is a panel about California politics, and this is more about the national landscape in the midterms, but it's about an incident that happened in California that hasn't come up yet and that I think did make an impact in these elections, and that's the attack on Paul Pelosi, and more specifically, the reaction to the attack on Paul Pelosi, where I think one of the reasons that why Joe Biden, I think, really did resonate with people in his presidential race was because he projected an empathy that was sorely lacking. And I think that when you look at close margins, like Kerry Lake barely barely losing, you have to think that things like her making cruel comments about Paul Pelosi or denigrating John McCain had some sort of impact. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, but also talking about how do we get back to a place where, like, I I love hearing the story that you're talking about, about McCarthy and Bass getting along. How do we get, get back to a place where adversaries are not bitter, deep enemies? Where's the, where, where can we come back from this? Senator, you want to take the last word? Okay. Um, I'll give you a good story. Um, yesterday or the day before, Jim Inhofe retired from the Senate, Senator from Oklahoma. Jim Inhofe and I could not be further apart. Trust me. We see everything differently. For example, he said the only two things he felt Washington should spend money, and you know him, the only two things Washington should spend money on is the military and infrastructure. Whereas I feel 
wherever people are hurting, where we can help and make progress as a nation, we should try. Totally different. Climate change, he made fun of it. He threw a, he, remember, he threw a snowball in the, in the Senate to prove that there was no climate change because it was snowing outside one day. <laughs> and he threw, and I went, Jim, stop. So we did not get along. Woman's right to choose. He wouldn't have any exceptions, and I'm fighting hard for women's. Okay, you get the picture. When he made his farewell address, and I did the same, but he just did it two days ago. He said, I just want to give some hope out there that Barbara Boxer and I, we didn't agree on, you know, the weather, but we were able to find a sweet spot. And we did five highway bills together, which involved billions of dollars and lots of jobs. And we did water projects and sewer projects because we could agree. And we made our differences kind of, we, we kind of decided we weren't going to talk about them. If I wrote legislation, I didn't write the words climate change. I wrote the words energy efficiency. He could live with that. <laughs> he couldn't say things that I couldn't live with. So it can happen. We're humans. And so my answer to you is, I don't know how to else to say it except that in our lives, our lives, okay, we have to see people um, as human beings. If we don't, you know me, if I don't agree with you, I'm going to go, what? And we did it here on this panel. It doesn't mean I don't respect you. It does. We're all God's children. So if we start doing it, it is the House of Representatives, right? And that's going to filter to everyone. I, we dodged a bullet in this election in the sense of both parties, you know, I think take away from this that this is what we need to do now. Let's see if it happens. But we, we have to fight for it. Um, I am absolutely closing with this. Um, absolutely. And this is it. There was a, I'm not singing. There was a song written in the 30s. And the words go like this. Freedom, freedom is a hard-won thing. You have to work for it, fight for it, day and night for it. And every generation's got to do it again. So there's no resting, and we all have to do it. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.